I do want to say that in the 1970s in San Francisco, it was a party. It was a total party. Hello, I am Kay Anderson, and you are listening to Lost Spaces, the podcast that mourns the death of queer nightlife. Every episode, I talk to a different person about a venue from their past, the memories that they created there, and the people that they used to know. So, picture it. It is 1989. One of the only lesbian bars in the whole of San Francisco, Maud's, is about to close down forever. And in the last few days, a plucky film crew sets up their cameras and their sound equipment to document the last days of the bar. Now, I know this is a really naive thing to say because everything is cyclical, right? But it kind of blows my mind that we were having these conversations about the importance of queer spaces and their preservation and how our culture is so intertwined with them over 30 years ago. But we were... And the resulting documentary from this night in 1989, which is called Last Call at Mods, is a really fascinating insight into not only the lesbian bar scene, but just the wider culture and the conversations that we were having at that time. So why am I telling you all of this? Well, I was lucky enough to sit down with the filmmakers Paris Poirier and Karen Kiss to talk about the process of making the film, the reaction that they got when the film was released, and really excitingly, we got to talk about what San Francisco life was like back in the 70s and 80s. Before we get going, I just want to let you know that we had everything set up, we were all good to go, and then we may have faced some technical difficulties. So rather than a free-flowing conversation between three individuals, it's more like me having a conversation with my aunts who are passing the phone back and forth between each other to answer different questions. But You know, I think that kind of adds to the fun. So, shall we get going? The other reason why we went to bars, too, is you wanted to hook up. I mean, you can say all this stuff about, oh, yeah, we want to talk with each other. And that's true, you know, but but it was to try to find companionship and sexual companionship. Well, so so are you saying before about how lesbians could often be quite judgmental of gay men and think that they were frivolous and overly sexual. Are you saying they were just all a bunch of hypocrites? No. Not at all. Uh, Obviously, women's sexual response is different from men's sexual response. And and you see it over and over again, time after time. Female sexuality is much more selective than male sexuality. (laughs) And I do think 
It has to do with plumbing. I, I really do. And I think gay men were mistaken in thinking that women were just socialized to be selective about sex. I, I don't think it's just socialization. I think oh, it's there's a lot of physicality there. I mean, I, you know, I think a lot of lesbians were shocked, for instance, when AIDS was ravaging the gay male community. And a lot of gay men were saying, well, you know, you're telling us we can't go to bathhouses anymore. And the lesbians were saying, geez, you know, if that disease had hit lesbians, we would have shut them right down. I mean, you know, it would have been instantaneous. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I do think that this sounds sort of funny, but there's like an automatic shutoff valve that women <laughs> often have that men don't. And it, it is all about propagating the species and that the male reproductive system is designed to spurt out this, these cells. And, <laughs> and the egg is a different thing. You okay, know, so, okay. Eggs. so the, the automatic shutoff valve, what triggers it? Uh, for me, the automatic <laughs> shutoff valve would have to do with, say I'm meeting someone uh, and I, I think she's attracted. Now, this is going in past tense, okay? So I'm, I'm reminiscing. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Yes, absolutely. Married. She, yeah, right. <laughs> and so she might say something that would turn me off, or she might act insensitive about something that I'm being very sincere about. Karen, this isn't about you. This is about <laughs> a shut-off valve happening, clicking in. In a, in a lesbian space. So, yeah, it would be like, um, oh, I thought she was one thing and then she's another. And so I don't trust that I'm going to get what I want. But what you're saying to me is that a gay man would be like, oh, oh well. I think the physical <laughs> look of another guy would override that other stuff. And in fact, I think a lot of gay men don't want to talk particularly well, to another one. Yeah, because that's when you find out that your your values don't overlap and you're like, shit, now I'm going to have sex with you. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Much more efficient. Much more efficient. You know, I, I, but I do. I think it's, a lot of it's physiological. And, and, but I don't think it's tied to love. I don't. I think that is a mistake because lesbians can be womanizers and they can have sex with people that they're not in love with, you know, so it's not love. It's more like, um, I do feel like for most women, a series of tests have to be packed. So it, it, it's a fussiness. <laughs> Karen, do you want to weigh in on this? You would hate me if, if we first met, right? And I was spouting this sort of thing and saying, oh, forget it. This chick isn't worth a drink. She's not worth buying 30 cent drink over. <laughs> so, but so we are different. And, and, and I totally understand transgender stuff. But back in the day, back in the 70s, a lot of Lesbians did not understand drag. You know, they sort of put it down as, as mocking. Mm -hmm. So I do think one of the biggest changes from even the 1980s to now is being able to articulate about sexuality, to talk about it much more fluidly and, and um, intelligently, to tell you the truth, mm -hmm. because there's been more done about it and more talking about it. You know, mm. so so that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. I think. 
yeah, really powerful for people to find the language that helps them describe yeah. what's happening for them. Right, Absolutely. right. But I think also women being encouraged to be secretive and 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 to not speak up. That I think that's changed a little bit. You know, I think more women are feeling freer about articulating their thoughts and and acting. But mm-hmm. I I do think women are more private about the sex act. Not that it's one act, but you know. Um, not if you're lucky. <laughs> It is, it is different. If you're born with, you know, a nest of eggs and you're, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, men are constantly regenerating sperm cells. I mean, I don't want to, I'm, I'm not a biology major or anything, but it, it, it's different. It, it, you know, it makes for, for different risks and, you know, that sort of thing. And, but I mean, the other thing that's funny is the older you get, the more in common you have with different genders, I oh. think. Tell me more. You know, age is a great equalizer, I think. Because the estrogen levels and the testosterone levels are dipping. Uh, well, the energy level. I mean, I used to have boundless energy, you know, uh, in San Francisco when I was in my 20s. You know, I would walk to mods from the commune I was living in at Castro and Market Streets. I mean, that was a significant walk. I would faint if I had to do it today. I, I couldn't make it. Physically, <laughs> you know, I'd have to, I, I, an ambulance would have to be called, quite <laughs> frankly. I mean, that's how far it is. You know, so your physicality changes. But so how, how does that make you more aligned with men then? Well, I think, I mean, a 90-year-old man isn't, now, not that I'm 90, but I have a gay male friend who is exactly my age, and he does not pursue sex the way he used to. He was in San Francisco when I was. We worked at The Advocate together, the newspaper, and um, very different he is now than he was back then. Sort of the same as me. We're different. It's sort of sad, but it's nature. It's not sad. It's just what happens. It's different. Yeah. And and you prioritize other stuff. Like paying bills on time. How boring. I, I do think I'm brainier. You know, I'm smarter. I have more wisdom than I did back when I was in my 20s, you know. Does that ever get in the way? I don't think my brain's ever got in the way of anything, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's more the arthritis. The arthritis oh, gets in the way, yeah. much more than, than brain longer. power. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so normally in this show at the end of the interview i ask the question when did you find out that the venue was closing but i want to ask it up front because it's so important to the the story so when did you he- first hear that mods was closing it must have been 6 months before the closing was imminent so we shot in september so that means we must have known in March or April of 1989. And I had studied cinema at USC. So, you know, part of my incentive was to capture lesbian reality, a slice of lesbian reality that I had never seen in all the thousands of films that I had studied and seen. I mean, there hadn't been lesbian representation that seemed authentic to me. So when I found out from Karen, who had found out from 
Ricky, the bar owner's wife, lover, that Ricky was going to sell mods after owning it from 1966. You know, it was kind of shocking. I said, wow, okay, great. There's a space. It's a space that I'm familiar with. I know how to capture the essence of it visually. And and then a, a, a friend of mine who was a classmate at USC said, you know, you need to set up a three-act structure in your head. It may deviate, you know, when people are responding to interviews topics. It always does. Set, set up a three-act structure and have a cast of characters, archetypes. So, you know, the bar owner, okay, the bartenders, the scholar, you know, the, the expert on lesbian culture, the clean and sober person who isn't going there anymore, you know, uh, the poet, uh, these sort of types. And so then, you know, from fooling around with that as a concept, because Karen had gotten me a job, a sort of front job at this very straight company, I had access to an 800 number, which I don't know. Do you have those in Britain, 800 numbers, or did you ever have them? Yeah, you might have to explain it to me. It is mm. a number where uh, you, the caller, if you had an 800 number, the charges would be reversed. And so you could call long distance on your 800 number and leave a message for someone. And if they called that 800 number back, they wouldn't have to pay the charge. Uh, and long okay. distance was expensive. Mm -hmm. So I, <laughs> I think I looked up in telephone books and, you know, talked to friends, tracing down famous gay people. You know, like Sally Gearhart and Judy Gron, the poet, and um, men too. And I'd call and leave a message for them saying, I'm Paris Poirier, I'm making a film. Um, we didn't even have the title for it yet. You know, I just said, Mods, the bar is closing. We're going to take over the space for the last four nights of, and days of its existence. And I'd leave this message. They didn't know who I was, but I said, call this 800 number. And so when I would leave the 800 number, I think they presumed that I had a big budget for this film because, you know, an 800 number account was expensive, you know, to, to carry. But the company that I was working for with Karen as my boss was fronting the bill for that. So that's how I made the inroads to these famous people who didn't know me and whom I didn't know. So, so hold on. So when they, when they rang this 0800 number, did they get to you or did they get to like the receptionist or someone as they part of this company? They did get to me and that's oh, how okay. it worked. But did you not have to answer the phone like, hello, this is such and such office? I don't think I did. <laughs> I think I didn't. I think I just said hello. <laughs> and they'd say... The thing is, not many people other than the ones that I connected with were calling that 800 number. The department that Karen was in charge of wasn't getting a lot of sales calls in direct. It was, a, it was actually a traffic school ah. that used professional comedians as the instructors. And it was called Let Us Amuse You, <laughs> like the, you know, the vegetable. Let us amuse you. 
And I don't think the phone was very active with <laughs> potential clients, but it was very active with all the people that I called because, you know, they were excited by this project, you know. At one point in time, I believe there were six lesbian bars in San Francisco, even in the height of mm. gay bar scenes, whereas for gay men, there were about 101, yeah. I think. So to know that one of these six dyke bars was going to close permanently piqued people's interest. Anybody who knew about lesbian culture, let's say, or gay culture, too, or bar culture. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I would answer the phone, just hi. And they'd say, well, I got this call about this mods project. And, you know, some of them would be interested and others wouldn't. And um, so. What was the time difference between you finding out that the bar was closing and then having this idea to make the documentary? Uh, it was immediate. Immediate, it, really? It, it really was instantaneous. I mean, as soon as Karen told me that she knew that Mods was closing, I said, yeah, let's make a movie about this. Ah. Well, how did you know? Because I had seen so many films being a film student and realizing that I hadn't seen a lesbian perspective in any of those films that seemed real to me. They all seemed very orchestrated, and there wasn't that many. And Karen's writing something here. You died so wanted to do the title. Oh, right, right. My original concept was a verite, Dykes on the Town. But that was before I found out that Mods was closing. And then Karen... Her friend told her that Ricky was going to sell the bar in about six months. And I said, no, we'll focus on mods. Ah, but okay. that's true. Yes. Originally, it was going to be Dykes on the Town, a verite. And then that shifted when we found out that mods was going to close. So it was going to be like more about a broader bar scene. Yeah. It was going to be sort of silly, I think. Just a quick ad break. Have you downloaded Spaces yet? Well, if you have, thank you. Come say hello to me at your earliest convenience. And if you haven't, let me tell you a little bit more. Spaces is the new group chat app for queer communities and is available right now in the App Store. When you download it, you can set up your own profile and then you will be able to join in any space you want and have a conversation with fellow queers around the world. I have created my own space there called Lost Queer Spaces, where we will be getting all nostalgic about the past, and I will also be sharing a few tidbits and conversations from every episode of Lost Spaces. In fact, if you are listening to this episode in the week that it's gone out, in honor of my chat with Karen and Paris about Last Call at Maud's, we will be talking all about movies that feature queer bars. And you know I'm going to talk about that homoerotic bar scene in Nightmare on Elm Street too. <laughs> so if you want to know more, all you need to do is find Spaces in the App Store, download it and set up your profile. And don't worry if you're on the go at the moment, I will make sure to include a link in the show notes to this program. I hope that I will see you there soon. Let's get back to the episode. What was the response from the lesbian press? How did the lesbian press respond? Some of them hated it. Mostly very. 
mostly very good. I think it wasn't everything that a lot of lesbians wanted, but I'm not sure what they want. <laughs> what does that even mean? Like they wanted... I, I, I don't know. There was one article that came out. We met this dyke. She was actually very femme and, ha- and had a cute little purse. And we met her for lunch. And, and she just, I don't know, she dismissed it. I should really reread it, you know. But, well, I think she thought that we were just skirting issues or something. Or, I don't know. Maybe she uh. thought she was going to watch it and have an orgasm or something. And then, you know, like it wasn't orgasmic. And so, you know. Well, it was for me. <laughs> Well, you're the first to tell us that, Kay. I really appreciate that. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it, sometimes that like our own community is more critical of us than those outside our community. Yes. And and it can hurt. I remember one review yeah, out of Denver. It was written by a gay man for a gay press. And he started the, the review by saying, I hate this movie. That was his opening line. I hate it. So a balanced review then. <laughs> but it's the one I remember. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the thing. But the straight press in Denver gave glowing criticism, <laughs> you know, and so maybe that's what he was reacting to. Like, I do think there was ah. something going on in certain markets where the praise we would get from straight press was seen as suspect and suggesting that maybe we had sold out. Oh, interesting. I, I don't know. I mean, I never talked to the critics, but... All the same movie. Yeah, they all see the same movie. But that's not true either, because, you know, there's that old film theory that every movie is really millions of movies because we all bring our own backstory to watching it. And, you know, mm-hmm. so... Um, there may have been something like that going on. So let's go back then to San Francisco in the 80s. What was the scene like then? I'm going to hand this over to Karen. The scene in San Francisco in the 1980s. That's good because it was sort of coming out of post-hippie phase, um, the hippies of of the 70s. And then when AIDS hit, and that's a little bit reflected in mods by 1989 when we were shooting that was that was a huge change in the community because gay men in San Francisco, I mean, it was horrific. We're dying in droves. You could see it. You, it was palpable. You could feel it when you walk down Castro Street. You could see businesses being shuttered. You could see um, men on the street who were ill. You know, you, you knew that. And at that point, you knew it was a death sentence because nobody came out the other end mm-hmm. once they were looking that ill. But the the need for women to be in leadership positions in gay organizations and whatnot became necessary. And ah. because this has always been a, through all of the movements, the, the civil rights movements, the voting rights movements, the 60s and the 70s, women were relegated getting the coffee. It was the guys yeah, in, yeah. who were uh, in charge, you know. And so when the, gay, when the gay community was so devastated in those intense AIDS years, women started taking over those leadership roles. And that was a, that was a change. And all of that was 
just coming around. And, and I think would mods have closed with, you know, the AIDS community certainly decimated a lot of the gay male bars, but they probably went from 100 down to maybe something even dramatic as 40. I mean, there were still lots of men's bars, but they weren't like the proliferation that there had been uh, in the 70s. Yeah. Okay, it's Paris again. Um, I do want to say that in the 1970s in San Francisco, it was a party. It was a total party. Expand on that. Well, you know, there were more than 100 gay bars, and often women were not welcoming them. And in fact, there was, I bet you've heard of this. They uh, used to say, uh, I remember standing in line for some of these discos, and they'd say, oh, Sorry, open-toed shoe policy, you know, <laughs> which meant women. Like, you know, you, you weren't allowed in. But there was a trickle down. I mean, the city itself must have had more than a thousand bars. I mean, you know, mm. straight and gay. I mean, you know, it was playground for partying. A lot of marijuana um, in the 80s, a lot of cocaine. It was a free-for-all. And that trickled down. I mean, having more than 100 gay bars trickled down to the lesbian culture, you know, in terms of feeling a freedom, feeling like, oh, yeah, we don't have to be afraid of getting roughed up, you know, on the streets of San Francisco because we might look dikey or what have you. That was enormous, really important. And even though there was differences in terms of gay male culture and lesbian stuff, and sometimes lesbians were not so kind to gay men, thought they were frivolous, thought that they were bratty, they made more money than we did and, mm. you know, had many more options than we did. And a lot of gay men were not welcoming of lesbians in their spaces, thought we were too strict about things and hung up about sex and uh, this sort of thing. Uh, you know, I had grown up in Boston, suburban Boston, and Boston was nothing like San Francisco was in the 70s. I moved there in the summer of 78. And, and it was like two different, not even countries, it was like two different universes. Galaxies. Well, and so was there any overlap between the gay and lesbian scene or were they just completely segregated? Some of them did segregate. In fact, a lot of women wanted all-female culture. They completely rejected patriarchy, which was, you know, interesting experiment. But I think one of the big mistakes was rejecting, I understand why they rejected capitalism, but it meant that they really did not pursue purchasing real estate and, yeah. you know, making money the way their gay brethren did. And you know, those gay men did benefit from that. Ah, especially the prices in San Francisco at the moment, yeah. Oh, yeah, you know? But these women really felt that patriarchy was to be rejected, and I think patriarchy is different now than it was in the 70s. Oh, tell me more. It's evolved, you know? But how much? And, um, but how much, I don't know. I mean, and Karen bringing up the Trump presidency. I mean, uh, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote mm -hmm. for that role as president, and she didn't get the job. <laughs> you know, someone else got the job who didn't get the popular vote. And, and uh, I mean, it, 
that sprung up the Me Too movement. And, you know, so there has been backlash against Trumpism and that sort of thing. But it, it does make you wonder, Kay. I mean, you know, how much evolution has happened? Mm-hmm. That, uh, that, that's not a good segue, Siri. So how did this film change your life? Oh, how did the film change our life? That's a great question. And it did change our lives. I think it speaks for itself. <laughs> I'm glad we made it. I never, I never, I never regretted making that film, ever. I, I, I thought it was exactly what we needed to do when we did it. Um, I think it made us closer together, right? We, so we have this offspring. I mean, I never wanted to have children. Karen never wanted to have children. And yet, you know, we do have children in our films, but Mods was the firstborn and Mods is the favorite. <laughs> and so then, so my final question, what do you think are the key ingredients to a successful lesbian bar? Feeling safe. The bartenders need to be friendly and attractive if, if they can, you know, if they've got it. <laughs> Make an effort, yeah. <laughs> Make an effort, right. Um, good bathrooms. I mean, that was the other thing. The, the bathrooms would often... Yeah, but that was part of the mystique of the gay community back then, that all the bathrooms were horrible. And uh, what a good jukebox. But, you know, my taste in music is different from what would attract Dykes or anybody <laughs> today, you know. Um, I think that's a, a feeling welcome, feeling like you're connecting with other people who are going to understand you and you're going to understand them. That's it, I think. Do you have any memories of mods or clubbing from your own queer scene that you want to share? Well, if you do, please get in touch. I want to create the biggest online record of people's memories and stories of queer clubbing. Go to lostspacespodcast.com and find the section Share a Lost Space and tell me all about what it is you got up to. You can also reach out to me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where my handle is Lost Spaces Pod. Find out more about Last Call at Mords by visiting the website lastcallatmords.com. Fairly straightforward, that one. And if you liked this episode, I would really appreciate if you subscribed, left a review on your podcast platform, or just told somebody else who you think might enjoy listening to this conversation. I am Kay Anderson, and you have been listening to Lost Spaces. <laughs>